Hello again, and thanks for joining us on the Main Question podcast from the University of Maine. I'm your host, Ron Lisnett. Well, the weather may not feel like it, but spring has arrived in Maine. And with the pandemic, people are eager to get outdoors more than ever. Unfortunately, you can't just pull on some shorts and sandals and walk into the woods anymore. Ticks and the diseases they carry mean you have to take some precautions. Lyme disease is the most well-known tick-borne illness, but others are on the rise. They have nasty-sounding names, too, like anaplasmosis and powassan. The tick population in Maine is growing and moving northward. Understanding that population dynamic and figuring out conditions and methods to control ticks is a major focus of a number of researchers at UMaine. In this episode, we'll focus on two projects in particular. Allison Gardner is an assistant professor in the School of Biology and Ecology. She's beginning a three-year study that will look at factors in the environment. Things like snow cover or temperature ranges, vegetation types that could limit the spread of ticks. Alyssa Ballman is a research associate who is the citizen science coordinator for a new effort called the Maine Forest Tick Survey. That will involve landowners along Maine's southern coast who will volunteer to collect ticks on their property. That data will help the owners of these forests and fields understand the tick-borne risks on their property and help figure out what land management practices might reduce those risks. Using technology to bring us together, we talked about the main tick issue and their research. Thank you both for joining us. We appreciate your time. Oh, thanks for having us. Thank you. So maybe let's let's start here. Let's try to define the place we're at with ticks. So what is the status of the tick population in Maine, and, and what are the trends showing right now? Yeah, so tick-borne disease has been on the rise in Maine uh, over the past uh, 20, 30 years or so. Um, most likely what's driving the geographic range expansion and the increase in number of cases of tick-borne diseases around the state um, is the simultaneous uh, geographic range expansion of the black-legged tick, um, which is the most important uh, disease vector tick species in the state. Um, and so due to the range expansion of the black-legged tick, uh, we're also seeing increases in the number of uh, cases of Lyme disease, anaplasmosis, and babesiosis in humans. And Alyssa, I guess that's one of the reasons uh, that generated this uh, survey you're putting together. Yeah, so this is really this um, great opportunity that we can be able to sample a lot of areas across the state of Maine um, and really to get a better idea of what tick species are where, where are they most densely distributed, um, and then also what pathogens um, are those ticks carrying as well across the state. Maybe let's back up a little bit too and, and, and uh, describe this creature. Where and how does it live? How many different types of ticks are there in Maine and which are the most dangerous? Sure. Uh, so there's over, actually over a dozen tick species that occur in Maine, um, but relatively few of them are medically important to humans uh, because actually many tick species are highly specialized on specific um, types of animal hosts um, like rabbits or birds, and they rarely encounter humans. Um, they're uh, by far the most important um, disease vector tick species in Maine is the black-legged tick, Ixodes scapularis. Um, which is the vector for Borrelia burgdorferi, which is the pathogen that causes Lyme disease. Um, and it also transmits the agents that cause anaplasmosis, babesiosis, and Powassan virus. There are a couple other um, medically important tick species uh, that we're keeping an eye out now, uh, that we're keeping the eye out for now in the state, um, especially the Lone Star tick, uh, Amblyoma americanum. Um, that's the tick species 
you might be familiar with that causes the red meat allergy and that transmits other pathogens as well. There's no evidence that that tick is really established and reproducing in the state at this point, um, but it has been um, seen you know, periodically through surveillance. Yeah, I really think it'll be interesting to see with this main forest tick survey, if we are seeing other populations of the Lone Star tick that maybe seem to be established. So I think that'll be another interesting uh, thing that could come about from this wide survey. The ticks have really, um, they have complex life cycles. Uh, they actually live for two years um, to go through all of their life stages. And every time they molt from one life stage to another, they need to acquire what we call blood mail. They need to parasitize the vertebrate host um, in order to be able to survive and reproduce. The tick life cycle is really embedded in the forest uh, community due to these uh, close associations between uh, ticks and wildlife, um, which might include you know, species like white-footed mice and deer mice, uh, white-tailed deer as well. And then the tick spends as well um, over 90% of its life cycle on the forest floor off host uh, where abiotic conditions in the forest environment like humidity and temperature uh, can really affect uh, how long the ticks survive while they're searching for a new host. Most people are familiar with Lyme disease. Uh, it seems to be you know, all over the place, but you mentioned some other scary sounding diseases. I mean, it's not just Lyme disease we're talking about. There's Powassan, there's the one you mentioned that uh, causes people not to be able to eat meat anymore, which just sounds bizarre, but there's a host of diseases that uh, you can get from ticks. Yeah, there, there are um, multiple pathogens that are transmitted by the black-legged tick, um, as well as additional pathogens that are transmitted by other tick species. And we're really, uh, Lyme disease is by far the most rapidly expanding in Maine and the most prevalent in Maine um, among these tick-borne diseases. But several other um, diseases have been on the rise as well, and we expect that they'll uh, continue to expand in range um, over the next decade or so. And I have the, some of the numbers in front of me um, just now. So I know in 2019, this past, this past tick season, there were over 2,000 cases of Lyme disease reported across the state, which, like Ali had said, is by far the most um, prevalent tick-borne pathogen and tick-borne disease. Other tick-borne illnesses are also on the rise. So last year, there were 685 cases of anaplasmosis and about 140 cases of babesiosis as well. How do they pass their diseases on to us? Is it just as simple as you're walking through the woods and they decide to hitch a ride for a while? Well, typically, uh, they need to be attached uh, for, a, for a decent amount of time before uh, they're able to pass on, pass on the pathogen to a new host and actually cause illness in humans. Um, but yes, uh, all of these pathogens are uh, vector-borne, uh, which means that they can only be uh, transmitted through the bite of an infected tick. Um, there's no other way to acquire them in the environment, and uh, ticks also do not transmit pathogens vertically, which means that the, the juvenile ticks can't be born with the pathogen. Um, they need to acquire it from feeding on a vertebrate host. And so the host that the ticks, be, and once the tick becomes infected, they're infected throughout the entire rest of their life cycle. So the host that the ticks feed on early in their life cycle really matters um, and has implications for the tick's ability to infect other hosts throughout its entire life cycle. And some, like the tick, the black-legged tick can actually have multiple infections at once, so it can transmit more than one pathogen to a human, potentially, if they pick it up from different hosts at different life stages. The story just keeps getting better and better, doesn't it? Doesn't it? <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Allison, maybe you can describe a little bit how you approach your research into ticks. What, uh, and there's certainly other people, I'm sure, at the university that are looking into this, but big picture, 
What are the big questions you're trying to answer? What I'm really interested in essentially boils down to um, where, when, and why uh, ticks occur where they do. Uh, and so uh, one of the major research questions that our lab has been focused on over the past few years is, uh, you know, what are some of the current constraints on the black-legged tick distribution? Uh, why is it spreading now? Why is it spreading so quickly as compared to, uh, you know, several decades ago when it was uh, becoming more geographically widespread in southern New England? Uh, I'm also interested in the ways that, uh, that humans interact with the environment uh, can impact our risk of exposure to tick-borne disease. Um, and that includes as part of it, how do our forest management decisions uh, impact the tick life cycle and the tick-borne disease transmission cycle, but it also includes behavior on the part of humans. Um, what do we do um, that potentially increases our risk of exposure um, to tick-borne disease? How does that interact with entomological risk and the density of infected ticks in the environment? And so, uh, so our, you know, our research really addresses both um, environmental and human components of the tick-borne disease uh, transmission system. And, uh, and we try to understand kind of what the, what the human landscape and environmental landscape of risk looks like throughout the state. So let's dig in a little on the, on the survey that's coming up. I, I gather that Maine's southern coast is sort of the hot spot for this. So Alyssa, maybe just talk, you mentioned the survey a little bit. Talk about the goals, who can be involved, how can they take part? You're, you're hoping for uh, a bunch of scientists that are just citizens of the state of Maine to, to be part of this, right? Yeah, so the Maine Forest Tick Survey is a new citizen science project here in Maine that we are super excited to launch this summer. And it's basically going to be a collaboration between us at the University of Maine and private forest landowners across southern and um, coastal Maine. And we specifically want to target those areas because those are the ones that have the highest densities of ticks and tick-borne pathogens. Um, and so <clears throat> basically the goals of this project really, like Ali had said, to try to understand this relationship between forest management and tick populations and tick-borne pathogens. And so what our goals of this project are to sort of try to tease out these relationships because we know people um, do a variety of different management activities on their property. So some people are harvesting um, every so many years for timber harvest. Some people are just selectively cutting for firewood. Um, some people are creating wildlife habitat. So there's a lot of different management strategies out there. We're trying to understand what are people doing and out of all those different management strategies, how does that impact the ticks and tick-borne pathogens? Um, so and so another goal of the project is also for landowners to understand their own unique risks. So people who own property all, I mean, you know, every different piece of land is going to be a little different. And so we want to help these landowners understand their own risks. And then ultimately, we'd like to develop recommendations for people on how they can reduce these tick risks on their properties. Um, and then finally, we plan to do a lot of community outreach and education with this information that we gather. Um, so if people want to get involved, they can sign up on our website, and it's um, umaine.edu slash forest tick survey, and we have a volunteer interest form they can sign up, um, and we're basically just looking for people, like I said, in southern and coastal Maine, excluding Washington County, sorry, um, and basically we just need people who have between 10 and 1,000 wood of acres of land in those areas. How do people go about collecting specimens and data and what might they get in return for their efforts? 
we're making it as simple as we can for our volunteers. So we're actually going to be dropping off um, all the supplies that our volunteers need right to their front doorsteps. So basically what that includes is a tick drag cloth, which if people aren't familiar with that, it's just a white piece of fabric that's weighted on one end. And then the other end has a rope that the person pulls the cloth over um, leaf litter and the ground um, and other low growing vegetation. And as they pull it over the top of these areas, the ticks will actually grab onto that cloth thinking it's an animal. And then the person collecting just stops periodically and inspects the cloth and pulls off ticks with tweezers and puts them into little vials of alcohol. Um, and so then we'll get those ticks back from them and we're going to identify them to species. And then we're going to take a subset of the ticks that people um, send us and we're going to be sampling them for um, what pathogens they have. So everyone who um, is gets involved will get a report basically of their property that says what species are there, um, what pathogens are also present, but then they'll also be, um, we're going to be putting out all the information, sort of a condensed survey that shows the different ticks and pathogens across the region as well. Are there known strategies for how to manage land to reduce populations? What could landowners do to maybe mitigate the, the threat they're facing, or is that part of what you're trying to find out? So there's actually a lot of evidence um, in published research that suggests that how we manage our forest land can really dramatically impact um, the densities of infected ticks that you see in a habitat. One of the most well-studied examples is the impact of invasive plants on ticks. Um, there's a really strong association between Japanese barberry and bush honeysuckle and the occurrence and infection prevalence of both black-legged ticks and lone star ticks. Um, so that's just you know one interesting example. There have been studies conducted um, mostly in southern New England, Connecticut, but also here in Maine as well. Um, that demonstrate that removing invasive plants can really uh, reduce the number of infected uh, ticks in the environment. And so that's just one example. Uh, we also know like at the landscape scale um, that habitat fragmentation um, through uh, suburbanization can also serve to increase the density of ticks in a habitat through a variety of different mechanisms connected to the wildlife community. Um, but interestingly, uh, timber harvesting is one of the most widely used uh, management practices among private forest landowners here in Maine, uh, but there's been no research conducted to date that actually, uh, you know, tests the hypothesis that harvesting can impact tick-borne disease risk. And so one of the interests of this study is to, uh, is to try to understand whether um, there are any land management practices involving harvesting that property owners can conduct on their own land um, that might serve their other goals uh, with their with their forest properties and uh, and you know conserve other ecosystem services associated with healthy forests um, while providing this additional benefit of buffering um, infectious disease transmission in the landscape. So with any environmental issue these days, climate change is always something that comes into play. So can you talk about how the change in our climate has affected the tick problem and what the trends in the future for our climate might portend for uh, us going forward? The relationships between um, black-legged ticks and climate change are very complex um, because as you can imagine, uh, climate can stand to impact uh, different stages of um, the life cycle of ticks and their hosts in very variable ways. The conventional wisdom is that uh, right now, black-legged ticks and lone star ticks especially are being constrained in Maine by winter climate conditions. 
it's typically believed uh, that the colder the ambient temperatures, the less likely ticks are going to be able to survive over winter, and the more likely you are to see a large tick population the following year. We've been investigating this as part of our research in the lab as well, and what we're finding is a story that's perhaps a little more complex with that. Um, for instance, one of our major research findings in collaboration with our colleagues at Maine Medical Center Research Institute is that the effect of ambient temperature on ticks um, can really be buffered by ground cover, um, the insulation that's provided by snow and leaf litter and tick habitats while they're on the ground over the winter. Um, so we found even in, in you know, cold areas of the state like Presque Isle, uh, ticks survived uh, to a, uh, a very high degree over winter as a result of the, the thick layer of snowpack um, that you see in those parts of the state. And ticks are able to survive there you know, much better than I think many people would believe according to the conventional wisdom. And it also yeah. is important to note that there are other drivers as well besides climate of interannual variation in, um, in tick densities. Um, for instance, if you, uh, you know, have a small, uh, really large small mammal population one year, then the following year you tend to see a higher uh, density of ticks. Um, so climate certainly isn't, you know, the be all and end all in terms of um, interannual variation in tick population size. But I do think that there's, um, you know, there's significant evidence accumulating that, um, that climate change is going to lead to uh, the ongoing range expansion of the black-legged tick and other vector species in the future. Alyssa, you were, you were going to chime in? Oh, yeah. I was just going to mention like what Ali was saying. It's really incredible how insulating snow can be. I know um, I did one experiment with a different insect, but we were looking at, again at its overwinter survival and we had temperature probes in the air and underneath the snow and it could be like negative 30 outside and underneath that snow it's around 32 degrees. So I mean you can't you know you can't just look at the ambient temperature and say oh well it was a super cold winter and we probably killed off all the ticks because especially if you have that snowpack it's not negative 30 under the snow. Uh, now, I imagine both of you are in the field quite a bit for your work, so maybe some, some practical uh, information here. How do you protect yourself? What, what are the best practices for making sure you don't get latched onto by a tick? Do you have to wear a space suit or, or what? I mean, kind of. <laughs> there, we do have a number of ways that we, we try to reduce our tick risk. Um, first of all, wearing light-colored clothing, so if you do have a tick crawling on you, um, you can see it. Also doing things like tucking your pants into your socks. Like I know it doesn't look super fashionable, but that way, if you have a tick trying to crawl up your leg, it'll be on the outside of your clothing as opposed to the inside. And I know um, the, the students in Allie's lab, I've seen pictures where in the summer, they will tuck their pants into their socks and then duct tape around all the seams um, just to try to keep the, the ticks from crawling to the inside um, of their clothing. Um, and then of course, you know, insect repellents, if you know, if you can, Unfortunately, uh, we're not able to use them when we're collecting ticks um, because that could interfere with our tick collection. But, you know, if people are out just for recreational reasons, um, that's a good way to help keep ticks off of them as well. Allie, any, any tricks that you employ? I mean, uh, I don't know if there's a fashion designer who can come up with sort of a fashionable suit for, for researchers like yourself or something. Well, I just want to echo Alyssa's, um, Alyssa's comments. I really think that the best thing we can do for ourselves is be really thorough about the tick check after we come in um, from outdoors, whether we're conducting research or recreating. I am happy to say that uh, as a result of all the protective practices we, uh, we take in the lab, uh, no one uh, in the lab has ever become infected with the tick-borne disease while 
um, while actually out conducting research. Um, I've never been in, uh, been uh, bitten by a tick, had the tick embedded in me while conducting research either, although I'm embarrassed to say that I'm a little a little less proactive when I'm out hiking for fun, and I have gotten tick bites here in Maine uh, while I've been out hiking, even though not at work. Right. Same. Are, yeah, I bet. I bet. Are, are there devices, sprays, chemicals, things that, that basically can keep ticks off you? I mean, there are a number of different products. So products containing DEET um, can help keep the ticks off. There's also, um, you can get you can have your clothes treated or buy insect repellent treated clothing. Um, so actually Insect Shield is a company that if you want to take clothing, you can send it to them. And for about $80, they'll treat, I think it's like eight to 10 items of clothing and then they'll send them back. And I think the, the treatment lasts for about 70 washes. So um, that's an easy way. So especially if you don't like covering yourself with off, you know, deep woods, um, having your clothing treating treated could help as well. That being said, I don't think that there's any product currently on the market that's 100% effective. Um, and I don't think that there is uh, such a, a miracle product anywhere on the near-term horizon. Um, so there really is no total substitute for doing the tick check and just monitoring yourself and, and, ma and making sure that you don't have any attached ticks whenever you come indoors. So Allie, maybe you could talk uh, about tick research uh, being done at UMaine Big Picture. Are there a number of folks involved? Is this a coordinated effort to sort of tackle this issue uh, for the state? Part of the reason I've really loved working in Maine over the past four years is because there is such a great active and collaborative uh, tick-borne disease research community. Um, there are a number of different labs in the state that are working on some aspect of tick-borne disease transmission. Um, so here at the University of Maine, um, we've been collaborating extensively with the, um, the tick lab um, at UMaine Cooperative Extension, um, led by uh, Jim Dill and Griffin Dill and uh, Tom Roundsville. They're actually uh, going to be partnering with us as part of the, uh, the Maine Forest Tick Survey to conduct the pathogen testing work. Um, which is uh, a really great collaboration that we value. Um, I've also collaborated extensively uh, with the, um, the Vector-Borne Disease Lab at Maine Medical Center Research Institute down in Scarborough um, and other labs around the state as well. Um, everyone's really motivated uh, by the public health problem that we're collectively uh, confronting. Um, we have very strong collaboration and a strong uh, Vector-Borne Disease Working Group in the state um, as well, that's led by the main CDC. Uh, and so uh, there's a lot of uh, data sharing, um, direct collaboration on projects that I've really valued and I think is going to yield the best possible solutions to this problem that we're all facing. You mentioned the Cooperative Extension Lab and for folks that don't know, I mean, the public can gain access, I guess, to their expertise. If you find a tick on your child or yourself or whatever, you can find out what's going on with that, correct? Absolutely, yeah. So this is a service that was uh, started within the past year, and the service uh, always seems to be expanding. It's hard to keep track of the number of pathogens that they're now testing for now. Um, but yes, anyone in the state of Maine can submit a tick to be tested um, to the Maine Cooperative Extension Lab. They'll identify the tick for free, and if you want to get it assessed for a panel of pathogens, um, that only costs uh, $15 for in-state residents um, to get their tick tested. They send you back a full report um, about the, um, the pathogen status of the tick as well as the species identification. Um, and that service is going on now. There have already gotten uh, 
several hundred ticks this summer. So uh, feel free to start sending them in. So much is happening in our world and our environment. Uh, obviously, COVID-19 is uh, we're in the midst of that as we record this. So, so, so what do you both what might you both say to people about how to understand and deal with this problem in the state of Maine? I think you just have to remember that there are a lot of um, big issues now, but tick-borne diseases are still an issue and to just not lose focus on that and to still be vigilant when you go outside and make sure you're still doing your tick checks. Um, so I think it's just important to remember that, you know, tick-borne illnesses are still here and are still serious. I know that we're all extremely eager to get outdoors now after <laughs> spending so much time um, at home during um, the back half of the spring. Um, and I do generally think that outdoors is, is a safe place to be. And I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting outside too. But, um, but yeah, to echo Alyssa's um, thoughts, uh, the, the ticks do not care about COVID-19, unfortunately. They're still out there. The mosquitoes are still out there. And it's important to continue um, to maintain our usual uh, personal protection practices around tick-borne disease. Um, even as the broader uh, societal focus is on um, how to protect ourselves from COVID-19. Another bit of practical information, perhaps, when you do a tick check, what's the best way to do that? I mean, some of these, uh, the stages of these creatures can be as small as a poppy seed. Is that right? How can you even find that on, on a person? It's really tough uh, for certain life stages. Uh, it, yeah, it's true that the nymphs are the size of a poppy seed. Um, I think the best approach is when you get home, just hop straight in the shower and check yourself for ticks then. Um, and also, uh, if you have any clothing that you wore outdoors that you think um, might have ticks on them, I often will you know, lay them out like on the hood of the car outside or run them through the dryer um, because heat does uh, desiccate ticks really quickly and it kills them uh, pretty quickly. Yeah, you don't want to just, yeah. yeah, you don't want to throw your clothes into the hamper with all your other clothes um, if you've right. been outside in an area that could possibly have ticks. And I guess finally, just looking ahead a little bit, will there potentially be a day in the future when we're going to be able to control or get somewhat on top of this problem, reduce populations, vaccines, or other ways to detect them on our bodies? Or what, what does the future look like? Well, certainly there are a lot of uh, federal funds that are going into research efforts um, to develop a vaccine and to develop um, more effective uh, tactics that we can use to reduce our risk to tick-borne disease exposure on an individual basis. Uh, but that being said, um, there's really nothing that's going to eliminate ticks entirely from the landscape uh, once they've arrived. And I think that uh, continuing to engage in personal protection and, and also in land management practices um, that inhibit ticks uh, is really critical. Uh, we know that the black-legged tick is a vector for, for numerous pathogens. So even if we did get a vaccine um, for Lyme disease, it wouldn't necessarily be able to protect us against other pathogens as well. Uh, and so this is a problem that unfortunately I really anticipate is going to persist into the future and, uh, and developing a range of different tactics for managing ticks at the landscape, the property, and the individual scales um, is really vital to continuing to protect the public health. Alyssa, any final words? Um, just we're really excited for the Citizen Science Project and just to kind of, um, you know, we, we're, it's a two-year project, so I just wanted to let people know if we're not able to have you be involved this year, hopefully we'd be able to be involved next year. So please feel free um, to sign up um, and we look forward to being in touch with our volunteers. Well, thank you both for taking the time to talk to us. We appreciate it. Oh, thank thanks. You. 
Just follow up anyone interested in being part of the Tick Survey project. Head to umaine.edu slash forest tick survey to find out more and sign up. Also, for those who find a tick on themselves or family members, the Cooperative Extension Diagnostic and Research Lab IDs ticks for free. And for a small fee, they'll test that tick for tick-borne diseases. You can find the Cooperative Extension website at umaine.edu as well. Thanks for tuning us in. All our episodes can be found on Apple's iTunes podcast, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and SoundCloud. We look forward to hearing from you with questions or comments at mainquestion at maine.edu. We'll catch you next time on The Main Question.